taking the time to join us this morning um, to celebrate the achievements of the wonderful Professor Ruth Meisner. So congratulations to you. And um, uh, I just want to say a couple of words about the um, Roger Needham Award. This was established in memory of the late Professor Roger Needham, and it's made annually by BCS for a distinguished research contribution in computer science in a UK-based researcher within 10 years of their PhD. So this year, BCS awards um, the Needham Award to Ruth um, Meisner for her exceptional contributions to identifying and solving fundamental computer science research challenges at the intersection of computational optimization and machine learning. I'd hope that this big, big audience, <laughs> small audience, would uh, join me in congratulating Ruth. So I'm going to present you now. <laughs> It's a different format of event this year, so um, we're really excited that um, Brian um, here, our Head of Content, is hosting this panel discussion, um, and we've got some amazing guests um, that joined Ruth, so we're all looking forward to a really interesting discussion about data-driven optimization and how recent research translates into industry and practical applications, so Brian, thank you very much, and over to you. Thank you very much, Julia. Uh, yeah, um, we're all joining in at the Ruth, aren't we? But Ruth has, um, has, has worked uh, uh, very hard on, on this particular event as well. This is the first time we've had a sort of panel discussion associated with this, but it fits in with uh, one of BCS's aims, which is to uh, show the wider world, hopefully, the effect that academia has and uh, how important it is to popularise uh, computer science in any form. It's actually quite difficult to do, but we're going to give that a go today. Uh, as Julia says, the theme is data-driven optimization how recent research translates into industry and practice applications, and we're going to discuss also the intersection of research and practice. But Ruth, as you so kindly brought the panel together for us, perhaps you could introduce them for us. Yeah, so I wanted to be able to introduce everybody, so thanks for the opportunity. Um, I'm going to start with um, Claire, and um, uh, Claire is my academic uh, big sister, so we, I have been hearing about publishing Claire's and been reading her papers since, uh, I'm not going to say how long ago now, because I have been um, but um, Claire, uh, in her PhD uh, with my uh, late advisor, Chris Woods, made major contributions in uh, deterministic global optimization. Um, she then uh, moved uh, here to uh, London, or back to London, because she, she had been in London beforehand, um, to take up a lectureship in the Department of Chemical Engineering. Uh, and as we learned, her research is like this perfect sort of putting together of sort of theory and practice. So um, she does a lot of this uh, molecular systems engineering, which is thinking about sort of how do I want my uh, molecules uh, to be designed uh, so that they are optimal in some sense. And so she comes across these super difficult uh, bilevel optimization problems and uh, large scale nonlinear optimization problems. Um, and um, the the, the other reason that, uh, or one of the many other reasons that Claire is quite special is that she leads uh, the uh, Sargent Center, uh, which is um, this Center for Process Systems Engineering that's joint between uh, UCL and Imperial. Um, what this thing does is that it's a consortium of academics, but then also um, a lot of interested companies, of which BSF will be a member for, for one year and then hopefully for a um, but um, this is really a place where, at, at least for me, one of the things I really appreciate the, the Sergeant Center is 
the way that I can sort of collaborate with uh, the companies. Um, Darren is the commercial director of uh, BSF uh, with uh, UK and Ireland. Um, so he kind of agreed to come down uh, for, for today. Um, I've gotten to work with BSF since 2017, uh, Nitin Mystery, who's uh, come in the back. Basically, he, he made me look awesome than Nitin. <laughs> um, and so basically, we had this like four month project that, uh, uh, that we blew out of the water and, and he made it uh, completely amazing. Uh, and then afterwards, um, uh, BSF started agreeing to work with me more. Um, and so, uh, Darren has a major leadership role at BSF at this point, um, but then uh, also has been very helpful in terms of checking the, the research and sort of making it possible going forward. Uh, for example, I'm still not a research chair from the Rundgren and Engineering, will help us sponsor by the, uh, BSF with the government participation. Um, uh, Timo is uh, the other uh, industrialist on this panel. Um, he directs the um, mixed integer optimization development uh, at Cycle Express. Um, so what what there is is Timo uh, and I do a PhD at the same time, uh, and we were technically on competing uh, software, um, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, and um, the the research that we were doing as PhDs has basically entirely been in the industry at this point. Like I mean, it's still there's some some still in academics, but. Uh, um, it's really it's difficult to do research in this area just because basically Timo and colleagues like him have, have really pushed this stuff uh, forward. So um, these kind of um, big teams in optimization like the one that uh, Timo leads, they really take um, some of what's been done in academia, but then also some of what you know maybe should have been done in academia, and and uh, make these these products. Uh, that then BSF and, and others uh, use. Um, and then Professor Michael Hoot um, is um, my, my head of department. Um, so thank you uh, very much for, for all the support of the head of department. Um, in addition to being my head of department, um, I think I also wrote my first grants with you. Uh, so, so thank you for that. He, um, <clears throat> he pulled me on to some initial grants and sort of you know, training wheels type thing. Um, so Michael has expertise in uh, discrete mathematics and that is optimization related, but not quite mixed integer optimization, but he knows mixed integer optimization. Um, so thank you for uh, being here. Lovely. Uh, thank you very much. Well, I think we all agree that's, that's absolutely excellent panel. So um, keep your thoughts rolling for questions as we go through. We can have a combination of some, um, obviously some academic insights, and the fact that we've also got um, 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 Timo and uh, Darren with us means that we can see how things have, have moved into the real world. And that, that, I think we can learn some lessons from that process as well, actually. So maybe we just start, uh, Ruth, with, with, with you, just to give us a, a, an overview of, of the work that we've uh, uh, recognized today from, from you. Yeah, thanks. So um, together with the BSF colleagues, we started calling it data-driven optimization. And I don't know what that means. But basically, um, I do uh, mathematical optimization and I do computational optimization, which is to say that we solve very difficult uh, 
problems numerically, uh, that can force this optimization problems. And we started calling it in-driven optimization with the BSF colleagues basically to try to emphasize the extreme messiness of all problems that we get with, with, uh, with BSF. Um, and so I would hope that most optimization uh, algorithms are built on data, but somehow when you move towards always trying to make it a problem that touches the real world, it gets messier than at least problems that I have looked at when I was saying, oh, well, I don't really, I want to work on something, but I don't have the data or something like that. Because it, it's always uglier whenever I'm, I'm working with uh, more, which actually makes it more fun. Um, so I work in two kinds of optimization. One is I work in uh, deterministic global optimization, of which Claire basically wrote the, the first solver. Um, and um, with that, you're using sort of branch and bound or divide and conquer algorithms. This is the sort of foundations that Timo bases his um, uh, his team on um, in terms of uh, the sort of same central ideas. And then um, the other kind of optimization I look at a lot, um, and this would be with uh, the BSF uh, teams, would be basically um, uh, like a Bayesian optimization or uh, like a black box optimization where you can take very expensive measurements but we're not necessarily, we don't have an equation necessarily um, that we can write down and, and use that. Lovely, thank you very much. So let's, let's look into how some of that is actually applied. Then. Let's make, perhaps you could start with you, Darren. Yeah. You're in an organization with very deep roots and, and huge volumes mm -hmm. of data. So how do you use data optimization techniques is obviously a, is a key question for you. How, how are you using this approach? Um, well, I suppose a bit of background first of all, so that so people who know BSF is, so we're, we're a global company, uh, founded 158 years ago mm -hmm. this year in Germany. So we have uh, about two, uh, 10,000 people in, in research, of which more and more being driven towards the digitalization part. Um, because when we develop our product, so everything you, and we always say, so the minute you go up and wait, the minute you go down, everything you touch will probably have a bit of a problem in some way. Uh, and they've got to be developed for our customers. So typically are the additives or parts that go into a formulation. And those formulations have to be optimized and meet certain criteria. So if you've got a, say, an agri-pharmacy product, um, the, the licensed farmer will say, actually, I want it to be specific on this gene in the farm. Actually, I want it to absorb onto the farm, or maybe I want it to run off parts of it. Uh, I want it to not drift so much in the wind. And so the, the, when we talk about the data, in terms of uh, and that, that, that messy data, it will all come into a formulation. And they've got to then work with other parts. So in terms of how you then take that data and you put it into the experiments that you want to drive out, and that's part of then how do you then put this all together. So we know the experiments we want to do, and we know we want to get to, but sometimes they don't always match up. So how do we then optimize the, the properties that we want in the product and use then the data to drive that forward to actually get that optimum piece that we need in the product to be developed? And that's always and it's a two-phase, then once you've got that, is then how do you use that data to, to look at how can you manufacture that at a cost that actually people want to buy. So it's not just the, the product and optimizing for, for the properties, it's actually looking at everything right way through that, that process and actually come to the end of the consumer and actually what do they want and drive it back and forth. So it's not just, okay, starting from the end, it's that, that whole learning part and then the iteration. So have your processes and organization changed as a result of looking at these principles of 
Oh, very, very much. Well, we developed a product which is out of the market for our customers, which is a, a re an R&D project. So our customers can, can link into it. It's called Pure Supplement Q. Uh, and they can then come in, put use their data from their formulation into this, and then drive their formulation and their, their know-how. So actually, it's working rather than us just making a product which our customers think they need, is that they can actually use their data mm. anonymized in our system to actually help us develop products for their formulations. That's interesting. So actually, it sort of fosters your collaboration as well. Yeah, very much. Thank you. Um, Timo, uh, FICO is a different sort of organisation. How have you found the, the, the concept of data driven optimization assisting your, I think it was an overview of your organisation as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, between this, the software that I'm working on, optimization depends a lot on the input data, as you can imagine. So, uh, the best optimization model is worth nothing without good data coming into it. and um, what we at FICO aim, aim for and try to achieve is to make this one like big, streamlined process for the consumer, so there's other team within FICO who look at what data care, data processing, and um, when I joined the company like 10 years ago or so, then everything was still on-premises, like our customers were mostly working with their within their own little shell and uh, FICO has started at that point to put everything cloud first, platform first and to well, offer ways to have everything with a, in one big online product um, where you can continuously integrate um, new models, change your models, continuously integrate data, process data, get your output, your visualization and I think that's something that has really changed in, in the industry that you are uh, going from well, standalone products, models that stay at the same time to continuously changing systems. Um, and then this brings new challenges to this, right? If you uh, process all your data just in time, in real time, so how do you mm. handle missing data? How do you handle data errors? This is where AI has made great contributions in the past to like, fill in the gaps that you have there and yeah that's where we are moving to and by now um, this is by far the biggest uh, biggest part of our consumer is people who work within an online platform. Yes. You connected two really far apart thoughts there for me actually. You, we were talking about an academic room and then you talked about customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Right at the other end of the process isn't it? So those things are linked for you. Yes absolutely right. I'm, I'm, left to uh, work in a field where the commercial research and development is too close to the academic research mm -hmm. and development as uh, Ruth pointed out. So when I transitioned from my PhD where I have been developing a solver to well, my commercial career, if you wish, where I was developing a solver, mm -hmm. essentially uh, the only thing that I need to change was like the, the Keywords in the code that I wrote instead of writing skip, skip, skip everywhere. I was writing express, 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 and but the, the work essentially was the same as uh, in my academic times, just with slightly different focuses on uh, usability, customer satisfaction, convenience. Really interesting. Thank you. Well, let, let's go. Let's go back to uh, oh, not back. Let's, let's have a look at the research area. So we'll, we'll start over with Claire. We can ask you about um, how. 
data driven optimization fits into your research product profile and targeting center. Thanks, Phil. I've started to like Darren, we've maybe given a bit of an overview of the targeting center. Okay. Um, so we have about um, let's say 250 researchers, so not quite as many as uh, BSF does. <laughs> Uh, but we are entirely focused on focused on software systems engineering, which really means um, you know we target the process and energy sectors, uh, and we work on computational methods uh, to uh, model, design, and operate um, those kinds of processes, the chemical processes of the type that BSF has, but also let's say uh, energy uh, kind of sector and you know pharmaceuticals, biological processes, so um, many things that have some, some chemistry uh, in them. And so um, we are about developing methods for this. We are a multidisciplinary research center, so we have people from mostly chemical engineers, but also computer scientists, design engineers, um, and, and a few other uh, fields of inquiry. Uh, and we like to, to try and bridge the gap between the scientific understanding and the development of methods for decision making uh, built on that understanding. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's useful to think about the, the those three elements of modeling, design, and operation, because there is a big difference in terms of the um, impact of data-driven optimization. Um, so for example, if you, if you work uh, on operations, which is actually very familiar to me, uh, but my, my colleagues work on that um, a lot. So this is a, a context where um, you know, you're going to operate in a process where the process um, has a control system. So you're limited in terms of the exploration that you can do to that system. Um, but on the other hand, you're generating lots and lots of data in, in the area. So you hopefully where you want to operate the system rather than a normal situation. Uh, and so the challenge there is, you know, how do you use that data to make better decisions, the data that's coming in maybe to uh, correct any model um, plant mismatch that you have uh, and, and anything that you haven't accounted for in, in, your, in your models and how do you both make minute-to-minute uh, -minute decisions but also longer-term decisions about how to operate that, that process and, and, uh, and improve its performance. At the level of, of design, uh, you tend to be in a, in a space where you have a lot less data that you have the ability to explore and so to do experiments. And I think there are some fantastic opportunities there uh, from data-driven optimization, both, um, you know, and it, it depends on what, what is data-driven optimization, but I guess I'll define it in, in, uh, in a way. So I, I tend to think of it as, um, you know, as, as, as Timo said, every model, every optimization problem has data in it and certainly don't connect to the eye, so that's, that's really important. But I, I guess you can have different degrees of physical understanding embedded in that optimization problem. Um, so you can go from having none at all um, kind of black box optimization to having um, very detailed models that you, you will typically work at the level of having you know, conservation of mass, conservation of energy as, as the underpinning principle. Um, and you might be missing some elements to, to those models. Uh, so you can have hybrid models, you can have quite detailed models where you want to use data driven optimization to build a surrogate model that can enable you to solve problems that were previously inaccessible. Or I think at, you know, at the formulation end of things, for example, or discovery, you want to use data driven optimization to support looking outside the box. So whereas 
Divine data visualization, you might be just making incremental innovation because you, you want to, to be moving close to where you know things are going to work, which is in program bit by bit. I think with data driven optimization, like Bayesian optimization, you have the opportunity to then do something quite radical with your experiments and, and hopefully to get better innovation. But I, I, I think in our field, this needs to remain connected to our physical understanding because the, the way that molecules and mixtures behave is so nonlinear um, that I think if we try to develop models that are completely free of the physics, we, the amount of data that needs to be generated is just intractable. And so we need to learn from what we've done previously, you know, whether on the specific molecules and mixtures that we have or on other ones, and if you think about pharmaceutical product development, uh, that is, um, uh, you know, it's, we need to learn from all of the other molecules we've developed and bring that to bear um, somehow onto the development of new molecules. I think the other, um, another area of, of challenge um, in the chemical industry and the application of these techniques to the chemical industry is issues around scale. So a lot of experiments you do at small scale, uh, but you want to scale up your process, right? So in the lab, you're talking about grams, um, at best kilograms, but then you're talking about tons often when you want to, to scale up, and you, you can't do experiments at that scale, right? So you, you need predictive models. So you, you know that issue of how you get the models to extrapolate to a different scale is really critical. Um, and same thing if you're thinking about sustainability and you don't want to think just about, say, your reactor or your crystallizer, you need to think about the whole system and its sustainability and how decisions that you make for one process unit impact on the overall performance. So you might want to compromise on the optimization of your reactor just because the separations that the further on are, are, more, are easier and overall, that means less energy requirement, less material use, better sustainability. So, so to me, those are some of the challenges around data driven optimization, where the scale of the data is often not matched to the problem you actually want to solve. Mm. Really interesting. So, you're saying it's that kind of that very basic. So, if I've got this right, it, it seems like you're saying you can't model ground in motion, you, you have to take the physics into account. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. So, there are some things we know, right? And, and a lot of the models that we use are. Um, you, you know, they have a degree of, they're, they're kind of phenomenological, they're not completely, yeah. uh, they're not first principles, but they, they have some physical principles. Interesting, thank you. So Michael, let's come to you. Um, same question really, introduce your institution a little bit for us and then tell us how your optimization fits into your research. Yeah, thanks Frank. Uh, so the Department of Computing is within Imperial College London, you know, which in itself is a world-leading university. So really, you know, we, want to do research-led education, and our research has to be world-leading. And I think maybe, you know, I've been there for 22 years now in the department. One distinctive thing I could probably say is that the department has an incredibly strong mathematical foundation, which resonates very well with our rules and, and scope of the award. So our undergraduate training in particular is really emphasizing a very broad spectrum of mathematics, say, whether that's statistics, probability, discrete math, logic, uh, and, and all those kind of things. And, and this is going beyond the first two years of studies. And so really, I think our students come, come out of, of their training with these incredibly strong foundations in mathematics. But at the same time, they're really engineers. And so they have understood how to design systems, to evaluate them, to understand how to scale them up and so on. 
and, and then to actually often use these mathematical foundations to do something new with those systems. Yeah? And I think this is probably why our undergraduate degree, certainly within the UK, is uh, you know, the most popular one in terms of application numbers, but also in terms of career traction. And this is certainly something that we want to continue. Yeah? So in fact, if I see anything strategically here is that the importance of mathematics and foundations and how this sort of blends with computer science and engineering mm. is just becoming ever more important. Yeah. So I think there's a very exciting time to also head a department in that kind of discipline. So we have, for example, a joint degree with the Department of Mathematics, which is running on a fairly small scale at the moment. Uh, but there is a real opportunity here to, uh, to scale this up and to sharpen the focus, maybe, on that interface of computer science and mathematics in particular. So, uh, but in a way, I mean, one of the challenges we also have is, uh, you know, growing in an institution with the limited foot space is very challenging, right? So, and that's maybe also in relation to the British Computer Society. How can we actually make sure that the quality of what we can offer can also be shared with other organizations and mm -hmm. institutions uh, so that UK students benefit from, from these kinds of things more broadly? Interesting. Thank you very much. Um, something that just crossed my mind there about uh, the fact that mathematics being the basis of, of these things. I was having a conversation recently with someone. If uh, there was a bit more of public understanding of the of the mathematics behind AI and large language models, yeah. there'd be slightly less imputing consciousness to it, and, and right. so on and so forth. Right. I guess that's another piece that we have lots of academics who now become uh, sort of ambassadors and have a public voice and. We have more colleagues in computing who engage with, you know, sort of number 10 Whitehall and so on around policy, mm. also with uh, your organization. Um, but I wanted to maybe also uh, make a comment on the research pipeline. I think Ruth mentioned that, you know, with uh, uh, the importance of PhD students. So it's absolutely critical, I think, that we have enough financial resources and also the incentives for people to join at a fairly early career stage into PhD training. I would say machine learning is still okay because if they want to have a prosperous career, they kind of have to have a PhD to get into these you know, companies that I don't want to name at the moment. Um, but in, in other areas, this is much more challenging. Yeah? So, so this is another sort of strategic piece. How can we actually make sure that we widen the talent base and the actual acquisition of young talent who, who would like to do a PhD? Uh, and maybe it's actually a comms piece as well because they might not understand the career opportunities that suddenly open up to them, not just nationally and not just in a specific sector. So, so that's a, a problem that we would love to hear some solutions about. Well, so, leaders probably have a role in that sort of compromising that sort yeah. of thing. Definitely, yeah. yes. Yeah. I'm not making promises, but that's a yeah. good point. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, I think from, from a country's perspective, the joint funding model is really attractive. So I think at Imperial, we, we have this year 40 PhDs. Running yeah. 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 yeah, and because of that, that, that shared uh, input and funding, I think that's really important for us. Mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, thank you. So, um, and, and what he's doing is going with these tools that he's been talking about with the Thank you, Mr. Wade. Ruth, let's talk a little bit about the, the research that's going on currently and that you think might have a, a, a future impact. So we've, all, we've already seen some examples of research being done and coming out of the project domain being used. That's great. What's next? There's a different sort of pipeline. What's next in that pipeline? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, you know, um, this, this collaboration with the Office of the Sport is extremely tight. And so with everything that goes on with 
translation, for example, of the it's you know we, we kind of know the translation already, um, and you know uh, with with Jose it's because he's a very late stage PhD student who has done uh, a, a ton of work already, and it's basically now cherry picking which aspects from his PhD does he want to implement. I mean everything is reproducible, but in and online. But what parts does he want to implement in such a way that it's really really like. Uh, so solid that the other can be using it uh, very, very frequently. Um, and so the, um, the Royal Academy of Engineering grant that I hold with BSF really does enable enable that, plus this really tight connection that, that BSF has made. Um, then with sort of where are we going next with um, um, phasing optimization type ideas, um, Ruby Cedric is, is here. She just finished her PhD and now um, she's working on her postdoc. Um, she has this amazing ability to understand the biological engineers I'm saying and then turn it into something that kind of makes sense with respect to mathematics and then like do amazing research that then like actually solves the problem. Um, but um, with with that, what we're what we're looking at or what she's looking at, because she's the expert in the area, is that she's looking at um, uh, design experiments when we have these uh, quite expensive experiments that involve these many, many different scales. So she's looking at these proteins where you, know, you have some sort of like 10 to the some silly number of possibilities, you know, 10 to the 13 um, more possibilities. Um, and then we can only do experiments on you know, tens or one hundreds um, of, of output. And we have intermediate information on, on some of the, the things in between. And so she's looking uh, kind of at kind of lines with what uh, Claire was saying, you know, how how can you um, put together physical information with uh, experimental instruments? Mm. Um, then um, with respect to uh, sort of integer programming and the kind of stuff that uh, Kimo does, um, at this point I don't have Work, I don't work as much on uh, solver development basically because uh, that part is. I don't want to compete. Is that the strength of those codes at this point? Uh, if um, I need somebody who's basically on the inside to you know help me out with the experiments if we're, if we're going to be doing that. Um, but We've been thinking a lot recently about embedding these um, trained models from uh, machine learning into uh, larger optimization problems and then designing effective algorithms that incorporate uh, these, these models that were learned from data into uh, sort of the, the, the typical uh, uh, integer programming problems. Uh, where yeah, we're really enjoying it. And where you know basically what it does is it creates these hugely difficult optimization problems that even the very best solvers like Kimos can't or have difficulty with uh, because because it's so ugly numerically it's not their fault it's my fault so it's basically well, trying to figure out <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> I'm always their worst user um, but it's basically trying to figure out how to um, make that kind of stuff more uh, numerically tractable. Uh, and that's that's what Juan uh, uh, is working on right now. 
So you might get something like the yield of a reaction, how much of the reaction has progressed, without knowing necessarily how long people waited for that reaction to happen, which you know, makes the result mm. difficult to use. Uh, sometimes not even know yet the temperature of the reaction proceeded. Uh, so you're missing a lot of information that that uh, is behind those data points. And the other challenge that we have, and where industry, I think, um, can really help us, is that a lot of those data are positive data. So in the sense that you only get reactions with high yields. Uh, but right. the ones with low yield are missing. And you know, there's been quite a few papers recently on the impact on that on machine learning or Commercial development and for uh, academic research. So, thank you. 
project that has brought us uh, really nicely. So, um, specific from what's interesting in uh, our line of research is that we uh, recently got engaged into nonlinear optimization. So, um, where linear optimization has been at the industry grade level for about two decades, I think it's fair to say. Uh, nonlinear optimization part was almost at the edge of getting there. So, a lot of great uh, academic research and so we finally made the step to deep ways and say, okay, let's uh, commercialize this and we're reading all the great papers by people like Ruth and Claire and implementing this and uh, really looking forward to what will be to come there. So what's the challenges? So uh, I think you pointed at a, um, a big challenge that we have here uh, is the commercial teams grow bigger and bigger and uh, academics get de incentivized to, to uh, invest in these. But I think that's, that's a big problem. And I would really like to discuss uh, uh, what we can do about this. So we really need both sides of the, uh, of the research here. And um, that's also what uh, I do on my academic side to yeah. um, try to find good good projects for, uh, for my PhD students where they can work on get visibility in this highly competitive uh, area and uh, I think uh, there's an interesting trend towards um, well, academic teams and uh, commercial teams teaming up, so to say, mm -hmm. so to say getting buddy teams mm -hmm. um, of uh, different projects working together and directing the research. That's interesting because that's brought it around to the, the, the last sort of thing we want to discuss, which is actually the people involved in this, who we're looking for, and and and, and getting people into this sort of area of research, uh, who it might suit, and so on and so forth. Um, it seems to me, from, from from what you're saying, that the idea of doing things in an interdisciplinary way and making sure that commercial industry and academic people linked up is very strong here. Is that a general trend actually in, in academia now, or, or, or are we a special case here? What are we talking about? Seems like the, well, that seems like a muggle question to me, but uh, you're looking the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly the material that's sort of part of the DNA, I would say. I'm not so sure I can judge you know, how, how this works nationally. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, but I would say maybe on the data driven optimization and strategically for, for the department and the, and the college. You know, this is not just something for a specific sector. We're very grateful for the partnership with PUSF. Um, it's obviously relevant for other sectors, but also it's actually relevant for academic research itself. Yes, yeah, so if you take, for example, a traditional technology stack or future data centers with these, you know, amazing increases of network speeds and so on, it's actually not even clear how to design future data centers. You know, with this sort of new kit and the new toys, and data-driven optimization will be a key part of that. So, you know, that's almost a question to Ruth. You know how. I mean, if you have your traditional customers as sort of, you know, industrial partners, then maybe sort of clients of them, uh, but they might actually be other academic research groups, you know, so how, mm -hmm. how would you see that making, if, if I may? Groups. So is the question basically translating from one application area to yeah, another? Being almost the user of the sort of state of the art of what you and, and Timo and, and Claire are doing. Maybe not necessarily clear if it's something about systems, computer systems, but oh, understanding see. enough to actually use that in your own research, which is traditionally maybe not optimization related. Um, 
And so the question is, how much do you need, or? Well, I think you need a PhD in optimization. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sort of bias and yeah. tinted glasses and so forth. Um, I guess, I guess, in terms of what does you know, you know, tools like what Timo and you know what, what the Timo leads, they, they are industry standard. You know, it is the kind of thing where you know um, you you don't need a PhD in mathematical optimization to to use the kind of tool that that that, that Timo develops, and that's honestly you know why you all do so well uh, at then selling it. Um, what I what I find at least for the, the 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 people that I get to work with, who of course you know, uh, do, do amazing things, is um, um, so both uh, Keaton and uh, uh, Johannes up here, um, they did PhDs that were somehow related to chemistry or chemical engineering applications somehow, um, and now they're effectively doing solver development with respect to supply chain and uh, semiconductor manufacturing. Um, and the thing is, is when you're sort of somebody with, you know, when you're somebody who has uh, expertise in the research of optimization, as both of them do, and in sort of algorithm development, they're both going to be using tools like what Timo develops, but those problems are so enormous that they cannot help but do solver development effectively on top of what uh, Timo is doing. And so they'll kind of be using those solvers, but then they'll also be developing uh, their own algorithms that are in a completely different domain than you know the, the research that they did as PhD students or uh, or as postdocs. But then sort of it's it's a pretty look. I get to work with really smart people, so when I say it's a pretty easy move, I mean it's a pretty easy move for people who are super uh, talented, right? But it's a for people who are super talented, it's a pretty easy move to um, uh, a different application. And then their knowledge of those algorithms, they know where the algorithms are going to be weak, of course, and then they are uh, changing those algorithms or writing their own things on top to make sure that uh, they're dealing with uh, the, the bits that they know are going to be difficult. I see. So there's basically higher adoption barriers, I guess, for other research areas uh, you know, compared to, for example, machine learning, which mm -hmm. all the software that's been created in the last 10, 15 years, you know, Keras is just, you know, Pointed out. 
is sort of quite knowledgeable about the optimization and what percentage of sort of, you know, I mean, certainly smart people, but people who are focused really only on the application and therefore aren't doing really your underlying algorithms. Um, huge. Okay. Over the okay. Time huge shift. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we are going to to the latter yeah. Yeah. one and. Uh, also interesting and quite convenient for us, this is usually where the big money with this project yeah. <laughs> can deploy something on a uh, company-wide yeah. level rather than only to a small yeah. expert team within uh, right. a big company. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, a very soon answer, Michael, right? Yeah. That, I mean, basically, yeah. I mean, basically the, the, the problem, you know, uh, people who are going to come to me are going to have some amount of problems, but uh, then you're expanding the, the base. <laughs> that process has got to happen to become a, a viable public product, is not it? Yeah. So, um, as you were mentioning the importance of PhD uh, in optimization, I was trying to do accounting uh, in my head, I think, in our expert development team, mm -hmm. 15 out of 18 people hold a PhD. So, uh, yes, that would be some great career perspective for. Let's talk about that thing with Darren. Can I bring you in about so what you look for for BASF in terms of the kind of people you recruit, what you look for in research? Um, um, the top business, I mean, we're, we're always looking for talent, all the talent is, is, is probably one of our biggest challenges, especially in, in uh, spectrum optimization or machine learning. Trying to find the right people, uh, the right quality is, is really difficult. So, working with the likes of Imperial and uh, understand what they're doing is. It's part of that. And so then setting industry challenges so that we, we can see where that goes. We don't want to take the thing, we don't want to take all of it. So we're having the type of route there. Actually, we want you to stay there. We want you to develop the, the PhD students there, the postdocs, the post because actually we need that basis, we need that relationship between academia and uh, industry. Um, and that's really sort of driven. So and, and the I suppose the roundness so to understand. So when we're looking for somebody in terms of Technical ability is great, so to understand, but also in terms of how do you translate, so somebody can translate what they're doing into real world product. Um, so that's why when we do our PhD or postdoc relationship, we, we bring them into our labs for, for three, six month periods as well, so they get to understand. So that communication is key um, to translating things. So we, we want to work and say, okay, we want the best people in terms of the high skills, but also people who can work in teams, which teams are important, and that's also giving back into university. So we learn as much from Ruth as mm. she does from us mm. as well, and that's really important in terms of that relationship to building translation. Uh, so in terms of yeah, a whole rounded person. So it's not just the the knowledge; it's about that that person and how you can translate the yeah. technology. Do you have a view on that uh, research properly? Yeah, I think this goes back to the question you were asking about industry academia and how mm. unique I think the, the kind of relationships that we have developed are. Um, so as as Michael said, you know, I think that kind of collaboration is really in real DNA. Um, and you have you have to have a culture where you place value on communicating with industry and making the effort to understand uh, and to explain be understood as well. Um, so I, I do think we have that culture, and I think the UK does really well in this generally speaking. Um, we, um, you know, we have things like the prosperity partnership that ETSLC has. So you know, BSF is, of 
Podcast has belonged to Imperial and others. Um, and those are really big efforts uh, that are co-led by industry and academia, but looking at fundamental research, and but also looking at the translation of that research into industry. And I think there's a fantastic program. And we have one with EIUE as well, um, one with Procter & Gamble. So we have a few of those. Um, and it's really transformative in terms of the kind of research that you do and the impact that it can have. And then you have things like REST, you know, with impact statements that give an incentive essentially to the institution mm -hmm. to support um, translation of research into practice. Yeah. Uh, and I think so the UK, I feel, does really well in that, um, you know, maybe moving away a little bit from things like impact factors in journals and, you know, mm -hmm. publishing in, in some journals that have high impact factors where, where the work might be more. Bruce Carrick, you know, so I don't want to devalue that at all, but I'm saying there's there's value in both of these activities, and you know, maybe you have a broader view as well from your interactions with universities around the world, um, and thinking about how they approach industry academia collaborations. I feel the UK is quite quite strong on that. Yeah, is that your perception now? Yeah, it's, 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 mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it's different in terms of different parts of the world. Um, I think from a for UK that. Collaboration is, is really strong from a, from a UK perspective. Um, and we obviously we base at Imperial. We do work with universities in the UK, but Imperial is our, our base. And because of that uh, that collaboration nature that we we have and that and that interaction, and it's a, it's about an ethos in terms of how do you want to work, how are we as a company, how do we work, and how does Imperial work, and it just fits. So. That's why we, we, we sent it, and that's why we work with the Latin group. I was just impressed in conversation from my perspective. Um, thank you very much.